Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders Podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Josh Hinman. Josh is the lead iOS developer at the Santa Monica-based company TigerText, which is a secure messaging platform for healthcare. Welcome to the show, Josh. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure. How's it going? Good, good. Yeah. What are you up to right now? Uh, let's see. I just made some breakfast, mm. and uh, now I'm just hanging out. It's Sunday, Sunday morning, sun's yeah. out. Yeah, I had uh, some leftover eggs and potatoes, and we melted some cheese on it, and then we had some yogurt and uh, granola and dried raspberries. Ooh, that sounds good. And coffee. Yeah, I just had some bacon and eggs, but... Mmm, uh, that yeah. sounds good, too. That's good. So, yeah, we're both in uh, sunny Southern California. That's nice. Yeah. So, as uh, you guys might have heard, uh, Josh is uh, the lead iOS developer at Tiger Text. If you are a longtime listener, you might remember that Garo actually was the lead iOS developer at Tiger Text. And between, uh, you know, that interview till till now, you know, Garo ended up going to Tinder, uh, which I don't know if we mentioned on the last episode where I interviewed him. I don't think you did. I listened to that interview. I don't. I don't remember you mentioned that. Yeah, and uh, and Josh ended up um, moving into that role, and so con- con- sorry, congratulations to you, Josh. Well, for, thank you. Um, I mean, I don't know exactly what you were doing before. I know you were at Victorious before. I don't know if you were a, a lead or a senior there. Uh, I was, in fact, the lead over there. Yes. Oh, y- you were. Yep. Oh wow! Look at you. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. Nice. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that later. Sure. Like, I'm gonna make a note of that. Like, what does that mean to be like a lead? Um, or a senior, because I don't know, that might be something that um, some people are interested in, like growing into, and that might be something I might want to grow into. So like, what does that mean? And like, um, but so a little bit more about how Josh and I met. Um, We didn't actually meet uh, through Garo. We met sort of through NS Coders. Um, So it's a local meetup here in LA. It meets in Santa Monica. Uh, Spitfire Grill, I believe. Shout out to them. Thank you for letting uh, us do that there. Haven't been in a while, but when I was first starting out, I would go there, and I remember Josh came in. It was a big uh, group that night, so I didn't get to meet everybody, and I just overhear, I overheard Josh talking about like putting out a bunch of apps, like a lot of apps, and I was like, oh, this guy seems like he knows what he's talking about. And then um, a couple, like a month or so ago, uh, around Dub Dub, like just after Dub Dub, I see Josh on the Metro. Uh, this was back when I was taking the Metro to uh, Carbon 5 every day to Santa Monica from Hollywood. Yes, and we I'm actually like, do have trades in LA. How about that? A yeah. lot of people don't realize that. Yeah, and it just opened um, yeah. around that time. So there's a lot of excitement. So yep. anyway, long story short, hey, what's up, Josh? You might not remember me. Um, how it was Dub Dub. And Josh is telling me how he flew himself to Dub Dub. And I'm like, wow, this guy is like... probably the coolest iOS developer ever, (laughs) like flying himself in his own plane or, or, you know, like, yeah, in your plane uh, to to DubDub. So that was really cool. And uh, then we just said, we got to interview, I got to interview you. So here he is. Here I am. Yeah, I believe you were trying to correct my grammar at first. Like, oh, you flew yourself, don't you mean you? I was like, no, no, I literally mean I flew myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. Because I wasn't sure, like, wait, does he mean, like, he flew by himself? Or like, yeah, so, and you're like, no, I actually flew, like, I flew myself in a plane. Yeah. 
<laughs> what? And and now I'm thinking like I want to fly. I want to get my pilot license. Like why not? Why shouldn't we just like everyone have a pilot license? I mean sure. not everybody, but like obviously go through the process and get license. Like driving, you know? Well, I, I've always said that if if you even have an inkling that you might be interested in flying, you should just do it because it's it's so much fun and so rewarding and uh, it's a it's a really cool hobby and uh, it's it definitely requires a commitment though, um, but. I recommend it for anybody who even has an inkling that they might be interested in it. Yeah, there you go. Heard it, heard it here folk, uh, first, folks. Go get your pilot license. Uh, right on, Josh. So you are the lead iOS developer at Tiger Techs. What does that mean exactly, and what's that like? Uh, well, it's <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting question, uh, what does that mean? Because um, I, I think it means different things to different teams. Um, I think, from my in my experience, um, a lead has is more of a like a kind of a mentorship role. Um, you definitely aren't making all the decisions. I mean, it sounds like you're like in charge and you're like dictating, like, well, this is what we're going to do. But it's not really like that because um, uh, you know it, it's really when you're on a team, everyone collaborates and everyone decides. Everyone kind of works together to. Um, decide the best way to move forward and the best way to architect things. And so being a lead is really more about kind of a, it's a mentorship thing. It's also, uh, you know, you, you tend to be the person that other people in the organization uh, go to with things, uh, but that doesn't really mean that you have all the answers. Uh, so that was actually one of the things when I first became a lead, one of my, one of the things I struggled with was uh, frustrated that I didn't know all the answers I felt like I needed to. Like, I'm the lead, I'm supposed to have all the answers, but you're not. Uh, it's, it's just your job to um, kind of uh, facilitate rather than know everything. What would happen if someone came to you and you didn't have the answer? Uh, I would say, well, let me, let me talk to the guy who does. Like, most of the time I would know who does. Like, oh, you know what? Uh, Garo worked on that. Let me go talk to him. Or, uh, or I would say, like, you know, that's interesting. Let me... Let, let me go go talk to the team. We're, we're going to figure this out. We'll get back to you. So would you say that a lead versus a senior, those are they're different or they're the same or they're just different words, but they mean the same thing? Or I guess, again, it depends on what team? Or? I think it definitely depends on the team. I think for the most part, they are different, though. Okay. Uh, what would you say the, the bigger, the big like differences between a senior versus a lead? I think, well, a, a senior is just a level of experience okay like once once you've had once you have a couple of years under your belt um you're probably pretty comfortable calling yourself a senior developer okay uh whereas lead is is more of a it's it's not really a statement of experience more that, than it's a statement of uh like you're the team captain kind of yeah exactly it's kind of like a team captain okay so you could have multiple senior developers hypothetically but you might have like one lead right you know and that that team lead is probably also a senior and they're like leading this group of other developers yeah yeah okay. that's a good way to put it okay interesting or you could you know be a lead and you could have a mix of like senior junior mid whatever yeah and that's usually the best way to go it's usually good to have a mix so um as a lead are you still coding a lot absolutely yep okay yeah i still do a lot of coding would you say it's like 50-50 uh, coding or 80-20 coding? At Victorious, it was probably more like 90-10. Nice. 
Uh, no, I mean the other way. <laughs> 98% oh. like other stuff and 10% coding. Oh. Uh, at Tiger Text, though, it's more 90-10 the other way. Nice. Yeah. I'm doing a lot more coding now here at Tiger Text than I was at my last gig. Awesome. And then you said you're not really necessarily getting to make like these bigger decisions. Like, so if there's a technology question, like, should we use something as simple as like, should we use storyboards versus like doing everything programmatically? Or should we use a first party solution versus a third party solution? Are you making those decisions or are you still sort of making the decisions as a group? We're still making the decisions as a group. I think the lead has kind of a, um, uh, I don't want to say a bully pulpit, but that's almost kind of what it is. Like the, when the lead, lead's supposed to have a little bit of gravitas when you, when you say what your opinion is, but that doesn't mean that, that the team goes with your opinion. But, you know, it's, it definitely means, it can mean a little bit more. It can, uh, your, your job is almost to set a direction, but not necessarily be too tactical. Okay, and so I think I, I think that comes from just the fact that if you have a lot of smart people on your team, like they're all going to have their own opinions, and uh, it's nobody's going to be happy working with some a lead who just dictates. Right, not, you don't want that's not that's not a good leader. Okay, are you having to do like a lot of like management, like people managing? So like, which requires you to do like non a lot of non-programming things like meetings and spreadsheets and stuff or <laughs> uh that's that was my at my last job yes okay uh, at uh, at tiger Techs, no okay at, cool. at tiger Techs, we have a we have a manager who handles most of that stuff and so i'm definitely just a technical lead here which is great okay awesome all right so hopefully we can get into a little bit more of that um towards the end because I, I think that's really interesting but uh I want to spend a good amount of time getting to know you. You seem like you have a, a lot of really interesting experience, and I want to know how that came to be. So when did you start programming? Uh, I think when I was 11 years old, something like that. Were, were you, um, did you grow up here in California? Or? I did, yep. Okay, northern, in southern? Southern California, actually in L.A. County. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, I grew up in a little town called Claremont, which is... Oh, Claremont. Uh, Nice. Yeah, you know Claremont. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, just about 30 miles east of downtown L.A. Yeah, all the Claremont colleges, beautiful yep. town. Yeah, that's that's where I grew up. I grew up in like Moore Park, Ventura, like so the valley sort of okay. area. Yeah. Um, but I've been in L.A. since like 2007, so. Yeah, I moved to L.A. proper in 2009, actually. Oh, okay, cool. So, yeah. All right, so you started programming at 11. How did you, how did that happen? Did you just like do it one day or you had a computer or how did it come uh, about? My next door neighbor had an old like 486 DOS computer and uh, it ran QBasic and we just, I don't remember how we, how or why we started playing with it, but we did. And uh, I think the first thing I ever programmed was you know, QBasic came with these two games. One was called, uh, it was, well, it was similar to Snake on the old Nokia phones. I don't know if it was actually called that in QBasic, but it was that game where you know, you had a snake going around the screen, you ate the numbers, and then you got bigger. And okay. there, was, there was another game called Gorilla, which was essentially like a scorched earth type game where you were these gorillas on either side of the screen, and you threw bananas at each other, and the bananas would explode, and they'd take out a piece of the landscape uh, every time. And then the, the idea was to you'd, you'd input like an angle and a velocity, and you'd try to get the trajectory of the banana to hit the other gorilla. <laughs> and it's, these two games were, were written in QBasic and they were, like, came with DOS like they were included with like DOS 6.0 or whatever 
And so the first thing I did was go into the source code and, and inserted like cheat codes. Oh, nice. So like in the snake game, uh, you know, the longer your snake gets, the harder it is to not eat yourself. Because if you, if you run into yourself, you lose. So right. that's, that's the game. So uh, I, had, I programmed it so that if you hit like the space bar, uh, you, would, you would become short again. Nice. So it, once I got too long, I was like, oh, I'm about to lose. I'd hit space bar real quick and then the, everything would disappear and I would just be a short snake again. Wait, so how did you get this again? Uh, how did, how did you is, get like the computer and the, the program and all that? So my next door neighbor had the, had this old DOS computer okay. and it was all okay. installed in there. I don't, I don't, I honestly do not remember like what motivated us to find this and, and discover this, but you know, we did. It's, it's interesting. You mentioned like the cheat code thing. Um, yeah. I hear this, uh, a lot actually. You're the, th at least the third person I've interviewed where they got into programming through video games and trying to do something like slightly mischievous with the video <laughs> game, whether it's like modding yeah. in Xbox or here like um, inserting cheat codes into the game. It's really cool. Yeah. So how did you, if it was your neighbors, like you would just go over there and work on it with him or how, yeah. how did that, okay. Yeah, the, yeah, the two of us, we were, you know, right after school, I'd run over to his house and we'd get on the computer and, you know, we'd mess around with it. So where did you go next? Did you start, did you continue programming like throughout high school and college? Uh, yeah. So uh, eventually I got my own computer at home, which was tough because uh, um, we weren't a super rich family. My, you know, my mom actually gave me, gave me my first computer, which was a throwaway from her office. Oh, nice. So she brought it home. She's like, hey, I got this for you. Can you figure out how to use it? And I was like, absolutely. And uh, Go mom. Yeah. And uh, so I... I actually I did a, I built a lot of little projects all throughout junior high and high school. Um, probably the most interesting one, or the, at least the one that um, got me the most accolades from my peers, was this this program called Chatbot, or it was actually called I called it iChatbot. Whoa! And it was a it was an AIM chatbot. I don't know if you remember AOL yeah. Instant Messenger. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it was an AIM chatbot that like uh, a tweetbot, something like that. So it's like it's like. It, was it built for AIM or was it a separate? So it was it was built for AIM and it was a it was a bot that sat on AIM and it had a screen name like I would sign it on all the time and you could message it and it would talk to you and the the main purpose of this bot was to um, at the time I, I, there was the two main chat platforms were AIM and ICQ those were the big ones okay and the big thing that ICQ had over AIM is that on ICQ if somebody wasn't online at the time you could send them a message and they'd get it next time they logged on. Ah, okay. But AIM didn't do that. You could do that on AIM. So that's what my bot did. You could, if you, someone we wanted to talk to wasn't online, you could message my bot, say like, you'd say, you'd send it message this person, and then you'd give them a message. And then my bot would sit there and wait for that person to come online. And when they did, my bot would deliver the message. Wow. That's some like futuristic stuff, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Especially now, like the whole bot thing is like, you know, you hear Slack bot this or, or bot that. Like, yeah, wow. this is probably 1998, 1999, something like that. Wow. So did AIM ever implement that feature or? I think they did eventually. I think they eventually did implement it. Uh, I don't know because I stopped using it um, like 10 years ago, but I think they eventually implemented the, that feature because everyone else had it. ICQ had it. MSN Messenger had it. Everyone had it. Yeah, I think AIM was the only one that didn't. So what did you do with this bot? Like, how long did it take for you to make it? And then, like, did it just 
just go amongst you and your friends or did you give it to other people? So I, I gave it to my friends first and then it just kind of went viral before Whoa. that was a word. Like it wasn't, I didn't know, I didn't know to call it that because going viral hadn't been invented yet, but it did. Like I gave it to my friends and they gave it to your, their friends because it was, it was a very viral thing, right? Like if you used it to send a message to somebody, if that person had never heard of the bot before, well now they've heard of it because now they signed on and this weird bot is giving them a message. How do you pass something uh, around like that? How does it go viral? Uh, like physically, like how do the bits travel at this point? Like floppy disk or I don't know. Well, it was you, all you had to do was sign on to AIM to use it. Oh, so you didn't wait. need to. There was no there was no extra thing to download. It was it was a bot that sat online. It had a screen name, and you could just message it. Oh my gosh! So yeah. it was just running on your computer. Yeah. Well, I had a yeah I had a server set up that ran it. And then anybody just wanted uh, to use it, they would add your bot as a friend. Yep, exactly. Whoa. Oh, my gosh, dude. That's so smart. Oh, that's so great. Okay, so how many people would you say? I wonder if I used that bot. How many people would you say ended up using your bot? Um, it, a couple hundred probably. I don't think it ever got more than a couple hundred. And that's actually because uh, there are certain limitations in the AIM system that I ran into. Uh, so first of all, you, there's a limit to how many people you can have on your buddy list. That's what it was called, your buddy list. Right. And you can only get notifications if people sign on if they're on your buddy list. So, uh, and I, I needed that. Like if you sent somebody a message, I had to add that person to the bot's buddy list so that I could get notified when they sign on. So you so, had a lot of buddies. Had a lot of buddies. Ran into that limit. So then I came up with this uh, other the system where I had other um, instances of the bot running. Right. Um, called, I called them spy bots. Okay. And their only purpose was to fill up their buddy list with people and then notify the main bot when one of those people signed on. Ah. So when I hit the limit on the main bot, the, the buddy list limit, then I would spawn another chat bot and I'd fill that one up to limit, spawn another one, fill that one to limit, and so on. I think at, at its peak I had like dozen or so spy bots online. And I think wow. each one had a limit of, of like 200 friends. I think that was the, that was the limit that AM. You, can, you couldn't have more than 200 people on your list. Wow. Wow, and, wow, wow. <laughs> and then there was another thing on AM called warning. Like you could send someone a warning if they, you know, were inappropriate. And the warning really didn't have any effect, except it increased your level and you, other people could see what your warning level was. Um, so if someone on your buddy list had been warned up to 100%, then there'd be a little like red thing next to their name saying that they've been warned. It didn't have any effect except that it slowed down the rate at which the server would let you send messages. Interesting. So if, when the bot got up to 100% warning, I could only send one message every five seconds, which was a problem if I had like three or 400 messages to send, and I could only send one every couple of seconds. So that became a problem. People would warn the bot for fun. Oh. <laughs> because it's not a real person, and it's like this warn button was something you don't use very often, because when you're talking with your friends, you don't want to warn your friends, but the bot, I guess, so people would warn it constantly. It always had a 100% warning level. Constantly, <laughs> and it's not the bot's fault. No, it's not. And then, Poor so bot. then I had I, I started having the spy bots uh, send messages, <laughs> which then, that just confused people because now there's this other screen name that's sending them messages, and it's like, wait, you're not a chat bot. So, so what ended up uh, happening with uh, with your chat bot? Uh, AOL shut it down. <laughs> really? Like they contacted you, or they didn't contact me. They just shut the they shut off the screen name, and I got this email saying your screen name, iChatbot, has been closed for violations of the terms of service. Oh man! And if they were it. smart, they would have hired you. Yeah. Do you remember uh, Smarter Child? 
No, I do not. What's so Smarter, that? Smarter Child was another AAM chatbot that, that AOL themselves developed. Either that or like another company developed it in cooperation with them. But anyway, Smarter Child came up like about a year after I made my bot. And all my friends' messages were like, oh, they stole your idea. And I was like, that's fine. Whatever. <laughs> oh, man. How long did it take uh, for you to make it, like the original? I think the uh, original bot. one, probably a couple of weeks. And then I just continually kept tweaking it, especially when, like, the warning started happening. I had to go in there and, like, add the rate limiting. And then the buddy list limit happened. I had to go in there and add the, the spy bot. So, like, it was, a, it was probably under constant development for, like, a couple of years. And what language was it in? Uh, you're going to laugh, but it was in Perl. I don't know really what that is, so I can't laugh. Why <laughs> should I laugh? Uh, Perl is just, it's one of those, um, you know, it's, it's just a language that not very many people use. So okay. It's, Why did it, you end up using it? I think it's, I'm not sure. <laughs> I think I, I picked up Perl because it was, I, you know, we had a Unix server at school that we were all allowed to use at our high school. And it only supported a couple of languages, and Perl was one of them. So so how did you actually like make it? So you're writing Perl. Are you just writing it in like the terminal or something? I'm writing it in a text editor, and then I'm okay. uploading the files to the server. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then the Unix server knows how to interpret exactly. Perl. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Really I could interesting. Have, I could have gotten a local interpreter, but I was on a Windows machine, and in the 90s, Windows in the 90s didn't play well with Unix stuff, so... It was okay. easier to like, I edited it locally and just, I had to upload it in order to run it. So it sounds like in high school, your, your coding was pretty occupied by your bot. Were you also like doing uh, computer science in high school, like computer science classes? Uh, yeah, actually our high school offered, there was a, uh, the local community college offered a couple classes to high school students. So it was like, you took the class at, at the high school, but it was a community college class and it was worth college credit. And, uh, one of the classes they offered was a C was a C class, C programming, okay. and so I took that. And uh, I remember that I I was a huge know-it-all <laughs> in the class, um, and I pissed off the teacher. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, looking back, like I, I was not I was I was kind of a jerk to the teacher, uh, but I was you know 16 years old, so what are you gonna do? <laughs> uh, like I would I would always try to outsmart him, and you know. He he just he'd make give an assignment that could easily be solved with a loop, but we hadn't learned loops yet. So I would do it with a loop, and then he'd be like, "That's wrong." And I was like, "Oh man, <laughs> oh anyway, it was Stunt, stunting your your growth." Okay, so you're doing these uh, C classes. It sounds like you're focused on com computer science in some yep. way in high school. How does that end up going to? I mean, I'm assuming you went to college. You probably did. You get a computer science degree, or I did not actually. So that's oh. another interesting story. Uh, with this. You wanted to this the the meet and greets only last like a little bit of the episode, but this might end up being a while. But <laughs> depending on how interesting you find these these stories, but uh, in high school, my other my other passion was theater. Actually, oh cool! I I was specifically like backstage stuff. So I I did a little bit of on stage. I acted a couple times, but my real passion was uh, lights and sound. Okay, so production, but light and production. sound. Yeah, specific. lights and okay. sound specifically. Like I loved, I loved coming up with light plots and deciding where the light should go and wiring them up and coming up with scenes in the light board. And so, so there's a programming aspect to that, but there there's is, also yeah. just like before there were computer programming lights and sound. There was um, like just the acoustic, like physical aspect. Were you doing both, or was, was it by both. that point? Okay. Yeah. So actually, so our our high, our high school while I was there, we got a computerized light board. 
but not until my junior year. So my freshman and sophomore years, I, we had an old analog light board where you know it was everything was analog. So it was it was actually the, it, that itself was interesting. I, I I love electricity and electronics and stuff too. So all that was fascinating. But actually, even the artistic part of about what color is good to set the mood for which scene, like all that stuff was very fascinating. The theory behind that. Yeah. Yeah, and then like the physi, I guess physiology, like with how it works with the mind and the, the eye, I guess. Sure, yeah, yeah, you could say that. That's cool, okay, so how did that How did that go? Well, that was actually what I ended up going to college for because uh, um, I had, this is actually, this will be a good story for people just starting out. I had a job in high school at a computer store um, that I hated. <laughs> and I hated you hated the, you hated the job or you hated the store. I hated the job because <laughs> the the guy who ran the store was this real crotchety, grumpy old guy who was a former electrician who you know he got laid off or whatever, and so you know he and his wife ran the store, and it was frustrating <laughs> a lot. And so I actually decided that I didn't want to do anything with computers anymore. Oh, wow. Um, and so the lesson here is uh, don't let a one bad job, like, ruin, uh, you know, what could be a passion. Um, what I think the important part is what could be a passion. If I took that advice, uh, I'd probably still be a lawyer, but that definitely was not <laughs> a passion for me. But I think, yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I th well, I think you have to differentiate between one bad job or, like, you just don't like the whole career. Right. Because you know? that, right. that might apply to your you being a lawyer because uh, – you know, if you just don't like the law, that's different than like this firm I work for is really annoying, a really bad right. firm to work for. Right. Whereas like for me, it was definitely the latter. Like I love working with computers. I just didn't like that job. I think a lot of the listeners uh, are actually coming from a job that they think they don't like or either yeah, think or have a feeling or know that they don't like. And they're seeing development as something or technology as an iPhone, for instance, is something that they are passionate about. Uh, and that's the truth for me. But I think that's either way, that's a really good point. Yeah. Okay, so what ended up happening? You're like, I'm not going to do computer science anymore. You're really into the products, like stage production stuff. Um, yep. Is this in high school, you said? In you're high doing, school, yeah. Okay, so then you ended up going to one of the Claremont colleges for theater? or No, I wanted to get as far away from home as possible. Where'd you go? <laughs> I went to, um, I didn't get quite as far as I could have. I went to <laughs> DePaul University in Chicago. Oh, nah, still pretty far. Cool. Still pretty far. Um, what was that like? Uh, you know, it was it was great. Um, it was it was my it was a really great experience. So DePaul University has a, they call it a urban campus, which means that they don't really have a walled off campus the way like, like USC a central or UCLA does. They it is sort of centralized, but all it is is a collection of buildings in one right. area of the city. Right. So there's not like a closed off campus. There's no difference between on campus or off campus. It's just. These buildings over here in this city block are our are our buildings, except right. for the except for these, this one and that one. It's like there's no uh, there's no campus. It was just, but but that was great because uh, it was my first time. I felt like I really lived in a big city. I was away from home for the first time, and I I thought it was great. I loved every every minute of it. So did you study uh, stage production there? Yeah. So my I was studying theater technology was actually my major. Nice. And uh, I was there for, I lasted one semester before I left. <laughs> Why? What happened? Uh, I just realized that uh, unlike computers, which is a true passion, theater was just a really fun extracurricular during high school, and I had very li little interest in it outside of that. Oh, wow. Okay, so what did you do? Uh, I came back home, and I uh, actually got a job, and I kind of didn't go back to school for a couple of years. 
Nice. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 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 What was what was going on through your head and what did your parents say? And like, how did you decide to just do it? Because that had to have been a really big, scary decision. You know, it, it didn't it probably should have been scary, but I wasn't it wasn't scary. It was it was obvious. It felt like I was like I got to I got to DePaul and I, I loved everything about it except for my major. And so I realized, like, this is not what I was meant to do. And I was still really interested in computers, so I decided to do that instead. Came back home, and my parents were extremely supportive the whole way. Like, they actually, they've always been very supportive of me. Like, even you know, all through it growing up, they would say, like, whatever you want to do, we're behind you. So, what would you say? Like, how did you put it um, when you explained it to them? Um, you said it was obvious, but like, how yeah, did I, you kind of put it? I kind of put it just like I did just now. Like I told them, I was like, look, I really enjoyed this when I was in high school, but I realized when I got to DePaul that that was it. I just enjoyed it as, a, as an extracurricular in high school. And I had no interest in it how professionally. Long did, how long did it take you to get your, your, the job? Was it a computer job? or? Yeah, so my first job actually after coming back from DePaul was at a little ISP, a little um, internet service provider which those don't really exist anymore. Now you, everyone just gets the internet from their phone company. But uh, back in the 90s, uh, you'd, get, you'd get internet from these little mom and pop shops that would uh, set up you know, modem pools. You could dial in. And I got, I got a job at one of those as a network administrator. Wow. Were yeah. you very qualified for that job at the time? Uh, I was to do it for a mom and pop. Yes. <laughs> I would not have been qualified to be a network administrator for like a, any kind of major corporation. But to run a run a modem pool and a couple of web servers for a mom and pop, uh, yeah, I was definitely qualified. So, how did you? How long did you do that for? And then, how does that lead to you becoming an iOS developer? I mean, that's you said it was like '90s, and then that you know, fast forward all the way to earliest at least 2007, yeah, um, or 2008. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot in there. Um, so, yeah, so I got the I got the ISP job. It was actually about 2000. Uh, I graduated high school in 2000. And, so is that probably end of 2002, beginning of 2001 when I got the ISP job. Um, from there, I, I eventually got a job as a database programmer uh, at a medical school. So is that like Java or? It's actually, it was Oracle, uh, and the language was called PLSQL. Okay. Mm, so PL, I think, stands for procedural language. So it's like, it's like a mixture of SQL and like adding a procedural language component. So it's basically you can write... Um, you can write code that runs on insert, so they're called triggers. You know, whenever some a database record gets inserted, um, it runs this tr something called a trigger, which is a little bit of PLSQL code. Interesting. So I was working for a medical school, writing that stuff. Um, I actually did tech support there first, and then I got the database job. But so then you're writing these database P PLC, PLC insert yep. in insert uh, programs. And, and what? Uh, well, I that was fun, but it wasn't really what I wanted to work on. Uh, I did it because that was the opening they had. That was the, the job opening they had. Uh, what did you want to work on at the time? I wanted to do web programming. I wanted to write websites. So this is uh, to, you know post-2000, but pre-mobile. Yeah, this is probably 2003 or 2004-ish. So it's all about the web. It's all about the web, and that's what I really wanted to do. That's what I was working on little side projects with that at the time. Um, I was, I actually, so there was a, you know, LA being LA, there's a little improv troupe that, uh, needed a website. 
Nice. So I wrote their, I, I built their website and I built this uh, scheduling system in PHP for them where like all their performers could go in there and mark their availability. And then the guy who ran the improv troupe every weekend could go and see who was available and then mark who was going to be performing. Oh, that's great. And it was just a, just a little really simple scheduling thing that I wrote in PHP. So how does this uh, eventually lead to iOS? So it's like mid-2000s, you're making yeah. websites, eventually mobile, uh, you know, iPhone comes out. I mean, did you were you doing web development up until that point? And yep. then you were just like, this seems cool, I want to try it? Or how did it? Yeah, so eventually I got bored with web development because web development, you're very far from the metal. Mm. Uh, you know, you're writing... Uh, in a lot of cases, you're writing C-sharp code, or I was, I was doing .NET C-sharp stuff, C-sharp code that would output JavaScript, which would get interpreted by a web browser, which, you know, it's like there's so many levels between you and the actual machine that right. you're running on. Right. And so that kind of started to frustrate me. I was like, oh, I want to, uh, you know, I want to have to care about things like memory usage and algorithm, like web programming, like, you know, servers are so huge and beefy that it just, just doesn't matter for the most part. You can write really inefficient code and who cares because the there's like a 12 core uh, server running it. Interesting. And I wanted to care about that. I wanted a job where that mattered. And I know that there, and I don't want to say, I, I know that a uh, web developer is going to hear me say this and start pointing out like, well, if, at scale it matters. And of course it does, but I wasn't, I didn't have a job working at scale, unfortunately. <laughs> so it didn't matter for me. Um, so... Uh, I started playing with, actually, just first I started looking into like Arduino. I was like, oh, maybe I can like make little embedded, embedded stuff. And uh, around that time, the App Store came out. Like uh, Apple announced that there was an App Store, and I was like, that's what I need to do. I didn't know Arduino existed right around that early time of the App Store. Um, for those that might not know, so you have like Raspberry Pi and Arduino, these like little basic computers that you can hold in the in the palm of your hand and I guess they're open source right and you can program them and they have like USB they have like you can attach different things to them like sensors I assume yep. um, but it's like a yeah and it's really big in the internet of things these days right yes okay. so Arduino is a great hobby platform I don't think anybody's making like a, a product to be released with it but it's a great it's a great thing to to play with and prototype things. It's great. Right, it's like platform. just a couple bucks, like thirty bucks or something. Yeah, and it, and it makes things really easy. Like you can you could pro make a quick prototype just to see if your idea is like even has legs. And then once once you finish your prototype, then you can go and you know do real circuit design. But yeah, it's a great little uh, prototyping and hobby electronics platform. What language do you use for Arduino or Raspberry Pi? Uh, I'm not sure. Me actually. neither. Me neither. <laughs> I wonder if it if it's. I mean, I think it's like. Yeah, I don't even know. I actually think there's probably a couple of different languages because I think you compile it down to a, a binary that you can run in. I, you know, actually, I don't even want to say that. I'm not sure. Okay. Well, well I, have I to never look did that up. I never did get into it. Like, I, I looked into it and I thought about, oh, this might be fun. And then, like, the, Apple, the App Store was the thing. I was like, nope, that's what I'm going to do. I'll did you have an iPhone that. at that time? Uh, I did not, actually. When did you get uh, your first iPhone? I got my first iPhone in. Uh, right after the App Store came out, I guess that would have been like 2009-ish. Okay, so and I got it because I wanted to write the apps. It's like, well, right. I guess I got to get an iPhone then. Okay, so you're doing web development. You're wanting to get closer to the metal. The iPhone comes out, but you can't develop for it yet. Then in 2008, June 2008, they release the SDK. I think in 2008 maybe, and the App Store shortly thereafter. Maybe I, yeah, I don't remember the exact order. That sounds about right. That sounds like the right timeline. So you're like. 
how, how did you hear about it? Like, I guess every maybe everybody heard about it. I don't know. How did you sort of hear about it? I guess you're into technology. So yeah, you probably... yeah. I mean, it was all over the tech press. So you couldn't, you, you'd have to be living under a rock not to know about the iPhone and the App Store and stuff. So how do you eventually like make that decision? You're like, okay, this thing is cool. There's something there. This is interesting. I'm going to do it. Like, how do you? Well, once, I mean, once I decided that I wanted to do it, I went out and bought an iPhone. I down, I actually, I think at that time I got Xcode off of the, Mac OS X install CD when back when you could still get Xcode that way. Oh, cool! I didn't know that. Yeah, and so I was like, I was like, oh, I, I need Xcode. Where do I get Xcode? I was like, oh, I got this, you know, OS X Leopard. I don't know whatever it was, <laughs> install CD, and that had Xcode on it. You could install it and uh, Xcode three at the time. And my first thought was like, oh crap, this is a terrible ID. Oh no. Because uh, I was coming from Visual Studio and uh, coming from Visual Studio to Xcode 3, and I'm sure there are lots of people who might disagree with me on this, but Xcode 3 was downright primitive <laughs> compared to um, compared to Visual Studio. But I per I persevered, I stuck with it, and uh, now we have Xcode 8. Now is actually really great, and I love it. And it, you know, no complaints. But I think I came in at Xcode 6, so I think I missed a lot of the. I mean, you know, I missed Objective C and I missed like Interface Builder being a separate thing. And yeah, like, that was all. That was all the Xcode three stuff. Interface Builder was separate. There were no like everything was a separate window. If you had like three different, like you know, in Xcode eight, you can have different tabs. No tabs in Xcode three. Everything it was a separate window. Uh, I don't know if it's just me, but maybe maybe not. I think it's like kind of everybody because things are always getting better. But it always seems like whenever I get to something. It's like it was. It's it's way better than it was before, <laughs> but I think that's just because that's how everything is. Yeah, and, I think so. And uh, yeah, so but it sounds like you were there during um, during more tough times. And, and you know, I'm sure the people who were there for Xcode one thought Xcode three was a wonderful improvement, and like, oh my god, it's so much better now. But <laughs> for me, it was like I felt like going from Visual Studio to Xcode three was definitely a step down. And I I, I hope I'm not stirring up too much controversy by saying that, but. Uh, that's how I felt at the time. So what did you what did you do? What was like the first thing you made and how did that I mean how did that lead to now being like a lead developer? So the the very first thing I made um was just a little um like image browser. Uh, it's just something that I wanted to have from personally. So it was like, like a photos app. Like a photos app, yeah. And it but well, what you do is you could point it to like a any you could point it to any website that had a had a gallery of photos um and it would scrape the HTML, grab all the photos, and give you a nice swipeable gallery. Nice. So I used it for um, Flickr. I used it for like basically any website that showed, you know, because at the time, you know, uh, the mobile web wasn't really quite a thing. It was, it was still, we were still figuring it out. So a lot of websites were not very mobile friendly. So whenever I'd come up on a site that was hard to browse on mobile, but it was like I wanted to see these images, I just copy and paste the URL into my app, and then I could just easily swipe through the pictures. Wow, that's pretty cool. I feel like that would still be useful. Even something like Google Images is yeah. like terrible on mobile. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe I should dig up that old code and, <laughs> and release it. I actually never released that app. It was just for me. Uh, I just wrote it for me. Yeah, it'd be cool. It'd be like a, you can do an extension now. So you just go yeah. to a website, that's right. and you just like open in, what was your app called? Uh, I think I just called it Image Browser. <laughs> it there you go, open real, in Image Browser. Yeah. Yeah, it's That's true. I didn't think about that. It's absolutely true. Um, but then the, the first app that I made that got released was uh, for a client, actually. So I had a friend that um, had, uh, had, a, had a friend who had a friend who had an ad agency, and his client needed an app for their, one of their clients, one of their ad clients. 
And uh, it, was a, it was an app where you could take a picture of your car, like a profile picture of the side of your car, and then pick different wheels, like fancy wheels. Nice. And then you could see how your car would look with those wheels on. Wow. And it was, it was not as fancy as you're probably thinking. Like it didn't automatically <laughs> place the wheels. Like you had, to, you had to drag the little, so it would put a little, it would superimpose one of the fancy wheels onto the picture of your car. And then you had to manually drag it to where the wheel was and resize it. <laughs> but once you did that, once you did that though, then you could keep swiping between all the different wheels and you could audition these wheels on your car. Nice. And that was for like some custom wheel shop that, that paid for it. So that was my first like app that somebody paid me to build that went into the app store. So did you at that point quit the web stuff or? Uh, almost. Okay. So I was doing this stuff in my nights and weekends, like on the sides. I was, do, I was working for, at the time I was working for a universal music group during the day, uh, making websites for Lady Gaga and Eminem and a bunch of other artists. Whoa. Yeah. And then at night I would go home and make these iPhone apps. Wow. And I mean, man, they should have been like, yo, Josh, make us some mobile apps, right? Uh, at the time there was a, uh, there was another company, I forget the name of it, Mobile Roadie, that's what it was. Mobile okay. Roadie had a pretty good business making apps for musicians. And they were like basically cookie cutter, like you just plug in some details and it would spit out a template app. And that's what, that's what Universal did for their artists. We had Not to Roadie downplay apps. Victorious, but I mean, that's like kind of. What Vic I mean, D Victoria's is doing on a way like epic scale, but like I think the main difference really interesting. Yeah, so actually, I, and actually, um, when I first started working for Victoria's, that was the big comparison that everybody made with us. It's like, oh, you guys are like Mobile Roadie. Oh wow! Um, but the difference is that Mobile Roadie was a essentially like a Squarespace type thing where you'd pay them a couple bucks a month, they'd give you an app, and then it was yours, and you'd do whatever you want with it. Whereas Victoria's is more of like a they partner with the artists to build a community and the app is more of a means to an end rather than the app itself being the product. Does that make sense? Oh, interesting. So okay. that's, that's the main difference I think between Victoria's and mobile roadie, but, but technologically you're absolutely right. It's, it's a very similar thing where it's like you plug in the details and then the, the system runs and creates an app, except that Victoria's is better. <laughs> the mobile roadie apps were, uh, I think they were like web apps. Even they were just like HTML wrapped in a native app and they weren't that great, but that's what, that's what Universal Music at the time was doing for all their artists. So, so I want to get to like iOS and uh, Swift specific stuff, but I just think your story is really interesting. Like, how how did when did you eventually quit doing the web stuff and go mobile iOS full time? Uh, I think so. After I after I did actually it wasn't too long after writing, writing that Wheels app. Like pretty much after I wrote that, I had the confidence to feel like okay, I can do this. I know how to build an iOS app now, and so I basically just started looking for openings, iOS job openings, and I found one at uh, break.com. Break, what's that? Uh, break.com is uh, a website that has a bunch of videos, like funny videos and pictures. They're kind of like a kind of like a college humor okay. type thing. Um, and uh, they're actually, break.com at the time was owned by this company called Break Media, which also owned a couple other web properties. Um, they're now owned by a company called Defy Media. Okay. Um, and I worked, I actually worked with them through that transition, like from the transition from break media to Defy media, I was still working there, but, uh, I built, uh, the break.com mobile app and the, uh, the, the, the iPhone app and the iPad app I built for them. And then there was a damn you autocorrect was another website they had. And I worked on that app. <laughs> damn you autocorrect. Auto, yeah. It's like a, like a website full of autocorrect fails. Like, that's you know, funny. Um, and, uh, 
So yeah. then did you, you work there and then go to Victorious or what was in between? Yeah, no, I went there, went there from straight from there to Victorious. Yeah. Okay. And how long were you at Victorious? I was at Victorious for two years. Nice. Okay. And then now at Tiger Text. Okay, now cool. Now at Tiger Text, yeah. Wow. So you did iOS development for, let's see, f- at least four, five years before, you, or wait, how long? Because you, you were... Did you go to Victorious as a lead or did you build into that or work into I, that? I worked into that, yeah. Okay. How long would you say that you were an iOS developer before you were a lead? Um, probably about three years. Oh, wow. That's not that much time. Well, you I, mean, say it that helped, that's it helped, uh, I think it helped that I was already a developer by the time I became an iOS developer. Right. You had all that previous experience for sure. Yeah. For sure. What, what would you say is uh, for someone like me who has no uh, prior programming experience only has a uh, iOS experience. Like how much time do you think it should, like if you were to hire somebody to let's say take over like a lead iOS role, like how much time would you feel comfortable like that they'd have to have? Um, and, and also be good for them. Like when I first, uh, re- when I was like starting out, like, I don't know, people like my story, I guess. And they were like, oh, you should apply for this like senior role. And I'm like, dude, I've only been doing this for like two years. What are you talking about? So you don't want to move too fast, right? It's like not good for you individually, right? Let alone like the people who are going to hire you. So on sort of both ends, what would you say is like a good number? If there is like a magic number. I'm not sure there is a magic number. I, I think it's very individualistic. It's it's very it depends on the team as well because the senior a senior role at one company it might be a, barely a junior role at another company. You know, depending on just the, the the demands of the job and the other people on the team and. Right, that's a good point. So, like a startup, and you're the only iOS developer. Well, you are the senior. You are the lead. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I would say like someone has to have at least like two, three years of experience or something, right? I, that sounds, about, so much that sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, right on. But I've also met people with, you know, five years of experience who barely qualify to be a senior. So it's all about, you know, it's all about how you, it's all about how, how quickly you learn and, and how, uh, how, how, how hard you work at it, really. But there's yeah. also like a lot of soft skills, would you say, that a lead maybe should have? Absolutely, yep, yes. Okay. Yeah, a lead, a lead needs to needs to be somewhat diplomatic. Needs to have, you know, like I mentioned before, like the mentorship skills, and uh, yeah, there's there's definitely some soft skills there. Yeah, you need to learn some of that stuff, the the diplomacy and all that. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about uh, Swift and iOS then. So Swift came out 2014. Uh, you're doing Objective C. What's uh, what's your thought like when Swift gets announced? I was super excited when they announced nice. Swift, and it, it took me by surprise too. It probably shouldn't have, but it did. I did not expect Apple to come out with a whole new language out of nowhere. <laughs> I just I did not see it coming at all. When did you start going? You know, going at it. Did you wait, or did you go? You know, right away. No, right away. I I downloaded the the Xcode beta that afternoon and uh, started reading the Swift book and started playing with stuff like right away, pretty much. When did you start actually like doing it in production? If um, probably that was not until like another year and a half though. Okay. Before we actually, and that was at, at, at Victoria. So when Swift first came out, um, this this actually was one of those times where I did kind of as a lead, like make a decree where we were not going to use Swift yet. Uh, and that's just because okay. it was just so new. Right. That I did not quite want to gamble on it yet. But um, 
I think when Sw the a year later at the next WWDC where they announced the next Swift stuff. Right. Um, I forget what Swift 1.2, 1.3, whatever it was. Like that's when we started getting into it. We started using it. Yeah, it definitely became more stable. I think yeah. at that point. It's still that still might have been too early, but um, at that point it was a morale issue because uh, everyone really wanted to play with it, and it was killing morale that we were still having just write Objective C. <laughs> so I was like, okay. Let's do Swift. So I want to talk about some of the things you guys do, um, or you did at Victorious. Uh, I didn't know that much about it uh, until I went to Cocoa Heads and you know saw that you know you guys, well, you know at Victorious, you guys were doing like uh, basically spitting out like multiple instances of sort of the same app but customized. Yep. And um, at that particular Cocoa Heads, um, Alex, I believe, and um, can't remember who else, uh, the DevOps guy. Uh, we're talking about like Fastlane and these internal tools and how, I don't know, it's just like really interesting. Um, the, the idea of being able to make one type of, you know, sort of one app and just like spit it out a bunch of times, but custom them. It's like yep. kind of like the dream, I would say, of like software development, like making it so generic but also being able to make it customizable and like reuse it right i mean we all want to do clean code and like make it reusable and it seems like what you guys what victorious is doing now and what you were a part of at that time is like very close to that uh, dream yeah it's well it's 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 interesting because uh you know the apps are not fully generic right they are they serve a specific purpose um but yeah, it definitely was a, a huge technical challenge to write a code base that was not just creating a single app, but it was like a single code base to generate hundreds of apps. Yeah, it's really cool. What were yeah. some of the like more interesting things on the iOS side? I, I mean, because like a lot of what they were talking about was like more on DevOps and like right. Fastlane and um, some internal tools for I can't remember what it was just automating like this whole process of like spitting out the application. Yeah. But what were some of the more challenging or interesting things on like the iOS side? Well, just to be able to, um, you know, use storyboards and zibs and stuff, but also have them be customizable uh, was interesting. Um, so we, we actually do use storyboards. We do use uh, nib files in the app, even though we have a lot of programmatic stuff as well. Well, one thing... Uh, I, I assume had to have been really important is like something called feature flags, which is I, yep. I didn't really learn about that until recently. Uh, so feature flags is like you can have a feature and if you want, you can turn the feature off for, you know, for like it can you can ship your application and the feature is just off because it's not even ready, but it's there. Absolutely. Um, yep. And, you know, that's feature flags is something that uh, is is a necessity for something like Victorious. Right. But um, I've now come to really believe in them as as important for every app. I, I think the feature flags are, are a really interesting um, way to work. And so I, I, I learned it in the context of extreme programming and the train always leaves on time. And yep. so you're working on a, a feature and a part of that feature has been merged into development, um, but it's the feature's not done. And so you just, and the train is leaving, the, the, the release train is leaving. So you just turn the feature off and it ships, but it's not on, the feature's not on. Yep. Like what, what's like one, 
because I'm starting to think about that. Like, how do you do that? Like, what's like a really easy way? Like, give me, can you give us like a simple example of like a feature that you would turn off and how do you do that? Sure. So uh, at, at Victorious, I can, let me talk about um, kind of slightly different form of feature flags that we use at Victorious. Okay. Which is that, you know, certain apps wanted certain features and other apps didn't want them. Right. So um, the way we did that was every time the app would start up, it would call our server and download a JSON payload that we called the template. Wow. And the template contained everything from what the, what colors should appear in the app, like what colors certain things should be, to icons, to feature flags. And it basically wow. the feature flags were just a boolean, a JavaScript boolean saying like, you know, um, you know, such as like forums colon true. And that meant the forums feature was on. If it was false, the forums feature would be off. Wow, that is so cool. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. That's awesome. Okay, so another thing I want to talk about is uh, more on the Tiger Text side. Uh, so Tiger Text is secure messaging. So that secure is very important because um, yep. it's for healthcare. Uh, so how how much work can you do as an iOS developer to make your application secure? Because to me, it seems like Apple takes care of most of that for you. Yeah, so uh, you know, coming from a web development background, it, it definitely seeing the contrast, there's definitely a lot more security to think about in a web app than in a, in a mobile app. Okay, but there's still a lot to think about in a mobile app. Um, you know, one one thing that's really important to think about is that uh, your programmatic interfaces that your end user doesn't see. Um, just because your end user doesn't see them doesn't mean some enterprising individual with a few technical skills can't see them as well. So to give you a concrete example, um, there's a certain location-based dating app that I won't name, <laughs> which ha had a had a, a problem recently, a, a couple of years ago. Um, they have a feature where they'll tell you how far away from you the, your match is. So you Ooh. get matched with somebody, you'll say like, this person is three miles away from you. Okay. And you know, okay, so they're three miles away, that doesn't really tell me where they are. They could be anywhere within a three mile radius. Um, but if you looked at the JSON uh, API traffic that was going back and forth between the app and the back end, if you were smart enough to know how to sniff that, which is actually not that hard if you know what you're doing, um, you could see that there was no distance number in that JSON payload. Instead, there was a lat launch. Wow, okay. It was a specific lat launch of exactly where the person was, and they just the client app would just do the distance calculation based on that. And so that lat and long, that coordinate was being sent um, through... Uh, for instance, like NSURL session or something like in a in a query string or something like that, or was, in the header, or it was in it was being sent in the in the payload in the data uh, of yeah NSURL session. So it would okay. have been, you know, uh, you know, reading downloading some data from the back end, and it would have been in the data you're you've downloaded. It was along with like the person's name and their a URL to their picture, and wow. there was the lat launch. And it's like, I'm sure when the developers are developing this, thought well, there's there's no privacy thing here because it just says three miles. But the specific lot launch was there for the taking for anybody who knew where to look. And so that's the kind of thing that you really have to think about with with the mobile app. So as an iOS developer, what do you do? Um, let's say, obviously, first you have to be aware of that. So let's say you are aware of that. You realize that there's this security issue, privacy issue. What do you do? How can you like secure that? I, I think the the... The best way to secure that is just to do the distance calculation on the server, and you just send the number down to the client. Okay. Um, but the the overall uh, that that solves this specific case. But I think the the overall lesson here 
is to never trust the client. Even though you wrote the code for the client, uh, there's no guarantee that your code is what's on the other end all the time. Right, because the client, the actual uh, you know, code you know, that your user or the, the app that your user is going to be sort of you know, using, right, is not in your hands. It's, it could be anywhere. It can exactly. be in anybody's hands. Yep. Um, okay, interesting. So keep, try as best as you can to like keep the secure, the, the, the sensitive information in your control, which is on your server, let's say. Exactly. Really interesting. And so there's, there's a thing called the security mindset, which is basically you're just in the mindset of, you know, you're always trying to think of how what you're building can be misused. So, you know, the, to, to contrast that with like a non-security mindset, non-security mindset says like, oh, well, uh, you know, people only ever use our app by tapping on their screen, home screen and opening it up. And so whatever they can do there is all they can do. But the security mindset will say like, oh, well, what if they did this? What if they did this? What if they tried this? Like if you're, you're thinking of all the different ways that things can be misused and protecting against those things. Very interesting. Okay, so what what can a iOS developer, maybe they're just starting out, and they say, you know, just starting out or six months, maybe a year, what should they be thinking about? What are some of the things they could be focusing on? It, or actually, is it even something that, they should be focusing on? Because I, I remember when I was just starting out, like I would not have been wanting to think about another thing like security, right? To like prevent me from just learning the basics, you know? When right. do you think someone should start thinking about that? I think probably you want to start thinking about it sooner rather than later. Probably not when you're just starting out because you're, you're probably too overwhelmed with like what is an optional to really think about security <laughs> stuff. And that's okay. Um, but as soon as you start to feel comfortable and you start feeling like, all right, I got this, I, I know how to build an app, then it really should be like a very soon after a step to start thinking about like, okay, now that I know a little bit, like what can someone else who knows a little bit do with this that could be nefarious? Like what, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I guess if you're going to be releasing an app, because a lot of people you know that are, that are doing this stuff, it's because they want to build something. They have an idea and they want to build it. Um, before you release it, maybe you should do like a security checklist or something like that. Yeah. What would you say are like a couple things that just like the really uh, easy fruit, what do they call it? The low hanging low fruit. Hanging of fruit. Do you know of any like low hanging yeah. fruit of security? The biggest, the biggest one is uh, don't invent your own encryption. <laughs> okay. A lot of, a lot of people who like, Oh, I want to make sure this stuff's encrypted. So I know I'll just, what if I just do this and they come up with some method of encrypting um, that isn't one of the standard methods. Don't ever do that, uh, because there's a saying in security that that anybody can invent an encryption system that they themselves can't break. <laughs> uh, but that doesn't mean that someone else smarter than you couldn't break it. So, you know, iOS actually has built in all the all the encryption primitives you could ever need. There's hashing algorithms and uh, symmetric and asymmetric encryption. And it's okay if you don't know what those mean. Like you'll figure it out when you're doing the research on these things. But like all the encryption is built in. The easiest thing is just use HTTPS. Like if you've got a server and your app is hitting the server, make sure that it's using an HTTPS link when it hits that server. Right. Okay. So right. there's a, there's a couple things in there, um, and and we'll get into more low, low hanging fruit. So we're talking about encryption. Yep. Um, it sounds like Apple has built in tools for encryption. So do we really need to like? Unless you have a specific use case for like most use cases, iOS developers can use Apple's built in encryption. I would say for 
just about all use cases. There are very few use cases where you can't use the built-in encryption. Okay, and then when we say built-in encryption, like what are the types of things that we are encrypting and like, how does that work? So it's like you're encrypting your user's uh, password, let's say, or? Uh, sure, so one of the, if you're encrypting, if you're holding user passwords, the easiest built-in thing to use is the keychain. Okay. Like the, it's, it's really easy, it's, it, well, easy is relative. It's actually kind of a ugly API, but there's lots of great wrappers on GitHub that you can download and use um, that wrap the ugly keychain APIs in something nicer to use, but it's secure. It, it uses the built-in um, file encryption f that is built into the iPhone, the same one that, the, that they couldn't break on the San Bernardino terrorist phone. Uh, oh, wow. So it's, I mean, if you're gonna store a user's password, that's the place to put it. So it's any, super easy. any like user sensitive data that you want to store on the device, uh, you can use or you should use the built in encryption tools. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. And Keychain is one of them. Keychain is one of them. Keychain is probably the, one of the most useful ones. Yeah. Okay. And it sounds like the Keychain API hasn't gotten Swifty. It didn't get Swifty this last step, Dev. Unfortunately, no. But there are some great Swifty wrappers uh, that are out there that you can use. Can you uh, recommend one? Uh, I, off the top of my head, I can't. I don't. Okay, that's fine. Uh, because personally, I I actually just use it, right, <laughs> even though right. it's ugly. But well, uh, I would recommend yeah. people use learn the first party one first before you use the third party wrapper. I would recommend. Okay, that's, so, that's a good advice, actually. Yeah. So what? Uh, what's is there any other like specific example of like a encryption uh, tool or API besides the keychain? Um, I mean, a lot of people don't think of this as an API, but HTTPS. Oh, right. Know, okay. You know, that's, uh, we mentioned already, but yeah, that's, that's a big one. Like all communication, and actually in iOS, as of iOS 9, um, that's enforced in the right. US, right? So you have to use a, a HTTPS with your server. And that's, right. So let's be specific about what we're talking about here. So let's say you are building your own web service. Uh, and your web service, it has a bunch of photos, let's say, on, on the server, and it's spitting out, you know, it has an API endpoint, like www.myphotoswebservice.com slash, you know, photos, whatever. And, like, yep. you want to interact with that API and pull photos down. Well, as of iOS 9, as Josh pointed out, the it has to be traveling over HTTPS. I'm not exactly sure what that is, but there's, like, that whole app transport security. But yep. you can, if you want to, like do exceptions for specific or all. Um, I, and I messed with that a little bit when we were doing some server virtualization, like that wasn't over HTTPS yet. Um, okay, so like explain, can you explain like a little bit about that? Is it is it not really that important because everything's HTTPS these days or? Um, well, so we, it's important that everything be HTTPS. So okay. I'm, glad, I'm glad that everything is HTTPS. Uh, okay. The exceptions are important because um, they're important for development because a lot of times you're dealing with servers that, you know, you haven't maybe you haven't had time to set up the encryption yet, or right, okay. sometimes you're working with third-party um, servers where you don't have control over it, and they okay. unfortunately are not encrypted, or or they may be encrypted but with an older standard that doesn't meet the standards of app transport security. So in that case, you have to put in a, a, an exception. Okay. Um, Apple has they've said though that they're going to start enforcing the that stuff in app submissions. So up until now, you could put in the exception and it's fine. But uh, they've said that uh, as of very soon, I think, they're going to start scrutinizing your exceptions. And they may actually start rejecting apps that put unnecessary exceptions. Interesting. So you'll still be able to use it for development purposes, but if you start shipping it, then there's going to be more scrutiny. Exactly. Yep. Okay, so just to kind of summarize that bit, because I think it's really important. 
there's really two, it sounds like, big things when we think about security on the iPhone. It's like if you're storing data, if you're storing sensitive data, so you can use um, Keychain and the other sort of whatever the other built-in tools. Like is Keychain just for passwords or it can be any sort of sensitive data? Keychain can be any sort of sensitive data, but it's it's relatively small data. Like you can't okay. use Keychain for like in a huge two megabyte file or anything like that. Okay, like a really sensitive document or something like that. Right. Okay. Um, sensitive documents, there's other things you can use. I, I don't want to interrupt okay. you about you're giving a summary. Yeah, uh, but I think that would be interesting to, to, to mention, like real quick, what is that? Is like, What so is the API? Yeah, so there's also file protection APIs where you can tell the system on a per file basis how protected you want certain files to be. Oh, wow. So there are different options, and uh, I, I can't remember the exact name of the API or the name of the options, but if you Google for it, I'm sure it'll come up. But it's, it's file protection API, I think is what okay. it is. And okay. it's... You, you, know, you can basically say, like, this file should only be accessible while the phone is unlocked. So the, Ooh, basically the minute that the phone gets locked, that file becomes encrypted and inaccessible again. And that's actually the level of encryption we use at TigerText. Wow. So while the phone is locked, we actually use that for our entire documents directory and TigerText. So when the phone is locked, you can't access anything. Wow. Um, another, another less, a little less severe option is you can say it's only accessible after the first unlock. So when the phone first turns on, it's not accessible, but then the very first time the user unlocks their phone, it's accessible, and then from then on until the phone shuts off, it's accessible. And I think that's actually the default. Okay. So if you do nothing, that's the protection you get. And then the least protective, you can say this file is always available, which means the system will not encrypt it ever. And is that for documents just stored in the normal document directory that you can store? Okay. It's it's actually for anywhere in your sandbox. So documents, caches, uh, temp, anything. You can, okay. You can okay. These so by not doing anything besides just saving like those documents, you're already getting that. that yeah, you default, get the. It sounds like exactly. You get the default, so it's only okay. accessible after first unlock, which means that, you know, if uh, if a, somebody finds your iPhone lost somewhere and tries to hack it, they're not going to get any of your app data. Okay. Wow. This is so interesting. Okay. Yeah. So just to continue that summary, then it's like storing sensitive data. Uh, on the device, uh, like locally, um, you know, in your app, like locally on the device, like maybe using core data even or something or whatever, using yep. like, you know, or a keychain. Um, so how do we secure that? It sounds like, you know, we can using <clears throat> encryption, we can use keychain, we can use this file protection. Um, we can use Touch ID to like prevent, like the only way you can access, like the Notes app, for instance, like the only way you can get to the Touch ID protected notes is to like use the um, touch ID and then so that's like things on the device then it's like things going from the device somewhere else so uh, it sounds like the big one is HTTPS and which is like Apple's already enforcing by default and most developers aren't like needing to think about that usually because they're either interacting with a web service that's already built or I don't know maybe if you're like using Amazon Web Services or Google Web Services or something that's probably already over HTTPS. I'm assuming. Yes, and okay. so then there's another there's another bit of HTTPS which is interesting, which you can use if you want some extra security called uh, certificate pinning. So what certificate pinning does is uh, so HTTPS, um, if you don't know, it it encrypts at point to point, but you know you still have to know that you're talking to the right person. Because you can imagine somebody sitting, intercepting your traffic, and they can't read it because it's encrypted, but what if, they, what if they intercepted the connection being made in the first place? And so like you reach out and try to connect to your web service. Somebody's sitting in the middle. They intercept that request, 
And w instead of forwarding it on to the web service, they send their own request to the web service. And they set up their own encrypted tunnel between them and the web service. And then they set up a separate encrypted tunnel between them and you. Wow. So then they can forward traffic between you and the web service, but they get to read it all as it's going past. Wow. So this is something called a man-in-the-middle attack. And the way SSL protects against this is through something called certificates. So when you first set up your SSL, you have to get a certificate that's assigned to you, and it's locked to your domain name. And that's how it's verified. So the idea is that if you don't own a particular domain name, you can't get a certificate. So our attacker in the middle here won't be able to get a valid certificate for your, for your website because they don't own that web domain. So in that, in, it kind of shuts off this attack because if I can't get a valid certificate, I can't set up the encrypted tunnel. But there have been attacks, there have been, this is not a perfect system. Sometimes people do get certificates for domains they don't own. Uh, and this is also, can be used for debugging purposes because you know, if I want to watch traffic going between my app and my web service, um, I may want to man in the middle myself for debugging purposes. Um, and so one of the ways you can do that is you can, I don't want to get into too much detail, but you can set up a fake root certificate in the device and then, you know. Wow. So anyway, the way to get around this once and for all is to actually, you can actually embed your SSL certificate into your app and say, this is my real certificate. Do not trust any other certificate but this one. And then that completely shuts down man-in-the-middle attacks. Wow, and that's so that's what you're doing on the iOS side is to embed that certificate. Yeah, and that's wow. called SSL certificate pinning. And so that's wow. like we do, and we do that at Tiger Text. And actually, this is one of those things that I, I recommend, kind of, kind of recommend everybody do, even though it sounds like a theoretical attack. It sounds like it doesn't happen in the real world, but the fact is, like, it's not. It's actually not that hard to do. I think we're doing that at Farmers because I'm not exactly sure why, but like when I'm trying to use our uh, server virtualization like for for testing and, and, and all that um, I have to drop a certificate on each simulator like so if I'm doing if I'm running it on the iPhone 5 simulator I have to like drop a certificate on that simulator so that it, it can interact with our SV I don't know if that's the same thing but but that uh, that might be a little bit different that might be like a client certificate that identi okay. that identifies the client to the server so the server knows who he's talking to Okay. Okay. Um, but you could also it could also be a pinning thing. I'm not sh I'm not sure without more detail. So again, to summarize, like on just for the encryption uh, on the on the iOS side, it's like how do you store the data locally, and then how do you transport it over over the you know over the internet? What are uh, what are some other like low hanging fruit in terms of security that an iOS uh, developer can think about, or should think about? Um, make sure that uh, your authentication stuff works without the app. So in other words, like the, the server itself is in, it's independently verifying that the client is who, they say, who, is who they say they are. In other words, like, you know, if you had a server that, let's say I had a, like a server that stored important data and, you know, you had to log in to get this data, I, I could set up the server so as long as you have like the ID of the data, I'll give it to you. It's like, oh, you've got the ID, I'll give it to you. And then what I do is I, in the client, I just, well, I won't give you the idea unless you log in. Um, but again, like someone could just make their own client that doesn't have that requirement. So in other words, like make sure that your authentication goes through to the server and doesn't doesn't purely rely on the client. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. So it's like making sure that your, it's almost like unit testing in a way, like making sure that your service 
does what it's supposed to on its own, independent of anything else. It's almost like giving it a mock client in a way. Well, this like, is, it's also just a way like don't, it's kind of an extension of don't trust the client. <laughs> you know, the okay. server should verify everything. So to give you a concrete example of something, something where this, with this bit, uh, a product I was working on, this is back from my web developing de development days, but it's kind of similar where we had the service, I didn't build it, one of my colleagues did, um, where you could, you know, go in and pick your class schedule. So when I was working for the medical school. And uh, the way the server worked is you give it a class, like a, a student ID and a class ID, and uh, it would enroll you. Um, and uh, he was checking the authentication token to make sure that you were authenticated, but he wasn't checking to see that the person that was authenticated belonged to the user ID, that the student ID that was given. So essentially, once you were logged in, you could change anybody's grades or Whoa. anybody's schedule. And the only, the only thing stopping you from doing this was just the fact that when you pulled up the list of schedules, it only showed you your own classes. But anybody who was smart could go up to the URL and change the ID and get someone else's classes. Because he, he was checking that the user was logged in, but he wasn't checking that the logged in user was the actual person whose schedule you were asking for. Interesting. So that's the kind of thing where like, you know, a lot of people in the web development world, I, that happens, stuff like that happens a lot. It happens less in the app world because in the app world, you can't just change a, a, a parameter in a URL like you can on a website. But that doesn't mean that someone smart couldn't figure out how to do it on, a, on an app, right? Like, don't fall into the trap of thinking that because you've written an app that's, that's locked, that like the code is unchanging, that, it's, that you're not vulnerable to these client attacks. Right, right. Interesting. Yeah. See, I thought that iOS took a care of like a lot of the the security stuff, but it's interesting. Like, there still is some things that you have to implement as a developer. Like, yeah, just something as simple as like not um, not sending passwords over like a query string. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Which uh, I didn't even think about when I was building something like one of my first apps. I was doing that, and uh, I didn't even think about that. Um, okay, so. We have like encryption, uh, you know, local and sending it over the wire. We have um, testing that your your server is authenticating correctly and like not relying on a client for authentication. Is there any other low hanging fruit that an iOS developer can kind of focus on or think about? Um, I think that that covers most of the low hanging fruit. Everything else would require like a good half hour explanation first before. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Um, right on. Right on. Uh, but, but I mean those. The, just using SSL is I mean, step zero. Like that right there is goes a long way. What would you say would be the the first one, like a more easier one to start uh, playing around with security, more advanced privacy and security on the iPhone? Which would you say is like the more easier one to start with? Uh, I would say start reading up. Uh, so WWDC every year usually has a, a security talk. And I would say like watching those talks going back a couple of years, uh, is a good first step to really understanding this stuff. And how important would you say is it? Uh, like, how real is this? Like, are there really people out there like trying to like mess with people's apps? Like, let's say I make like a little social app. I mean, maybe people don't really care, but if it starts to become like big and, and viral, I guess go big. Like, people well, are trying to mess with it, or yeah. Well, I mean, the uh, the location based dating app that I mentioned earlier, like this this was a news. Or this was a a bit of bad press for them when this happened. Right. So, I mean, that's that's some, definitely something to think about. People do discover this stuff. Okay. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting because, you know, you don't think when you're first building something that 
it's going to matter. But like you said, if once it starts getting big, it can start to matter. Like look at Twitter. You know, Twitter when they I'm sure when they were first building it, they didn't realize that it was going to be like used by uh, dissidents who are trying to over you know trying to go against their own government, you know, right. their own oppressive governments. And so now it's like, wow, Twitter is actually really important to these these people in, in these repressive countries that are trying to escape their their governments. And uh, all of a sudden, security in that instance matters a whole heck of a lot. Right, right. And so, you know, I'm sure I'm sure the Twitter people didn't didn't foresee that, but there it is. So, yeah, I, I think it's really important to think about it. even if even if you don't think like, oh, who's going to care about my little app? You never know, you know, when it's going to be really important to somebody. Uh, real quick, because we are uh, we're well at the end and, and over. But uh, is there anything in particular that's like unique to Swift when it comes to security, or is that not does that not really matter in terms of oh, like no. the language? Oh, it matters. Yeah. So Swift. There's Swift is a safe language, um, and by safe I mean like it, it eliminates huge classes of bugs that can happen, and these bugs that that it eliminates have security implications. So one thing is like a buffer overflow bug. This is where in C, a lot of times in C you allocate a bit of memory and then you copy some data into that memory, and a buffer overflow is basically when you make a mistake in your programming, you don't allocate enough memory and you copy too much data. So what ends up happening is you overwrite bits of data that, that you didn't mean to overwrite. And this can cause huge security problems because you can overwrite like secure areas of memory or you can, you can actually create overwrite executable code with other executable code called shell code, which is, you know, you can use that to break into systems. So um, in Swift, that's not possible because you don't allocate your own memory. So like it's a huge class of bug, just impossible to write in Swift. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, and there's there's a couple other things like that. So there's buffer overflows, and then there's also uh, use after free bugs, which is where you you free up some memory, but then you forget you freed it, or you later on in your code you use it again, even though you freed it already. That's another that can have security implications, um, and those are impossible in Swift because of the strict memory model. So yeah, I think Swift is a huge win for security. Awesome. Yeah. You know, I'm just remembering, I don't know if it's related at all, but I'm remembering our conversation on the Metro. I was asking you about um, any interesting dub dub uh, sessions from this last um, dub dub. And you mentioned the thread analyzer and, or thread sanitizer and static analysis or something oh, like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. What is that? I haven't watched the video yet, but can you like give me like a quick like one, you know, one sentence? Like what is that? Sure. So the, yeah, the basically the thread, um, the thread sanitizer uh, finds uh, race conditions in your code. So a race condition is where you've got a, usually some bi a bit of shared memory or, or some shared resource that two threads are trying to simultaneously write to. So let's say you've got like a string or something in memory and you've got two different threads that are both writing something to that string. Let's say one thread is trying to say hello world and the other thread is trying to write uh, hello or goodbye Mars, so let's say. Okay. If both those threads start writing at the same time, their writes can interleave with each other. So in other words, um, the first thread starts writing HE, and then the other thread writes GO, and the other one writes LL, the other one's D. So, so you, instead of hello world or goodbye Mars, you get like, hey, goodbye Mars. Right, all right? Inter interwoven. All interwoven. And so with a string it's just kind of funny but that you can imagine with like sensitive data that could be a real problem if that if the, if it's writing a, a a pointer it could actually write an invalid pointer because now your your bits are interleaving so it's a it's a problem and the solution is just to make sure that one, only one thread writes at a time 
Um, and when we say thread, we mean like cues, like the, yeah, cues. the main thread, the you know background thread, that exactly. kind of stuff. Okay. Yep. So what, the way the, the thread sanitizer fixes, basically the thread sanitizer will catch these and will stop the program and tell you you've got a race condition here, which to me sounded, it sounds impossible. Like I don't even know, I, I mean, I, I know how it works now because I, I read up on how it works, which is fascinating. Um, but before before this tool was invented, I didn't think such a tool would even be possible. Like, how are you going to write a tool to detect this? Because it is a thing that depends on timing. Like, it may only happen sometimes because you you know you're, it's called a race condition because it's essentially the two threads race against each other. It's like a which one can do it can do their right first. You know, it's a it's a race. Yeah, yeah. It's, so so it's like how how do you really detect that? Uh, especially if the race doesn't happen. Like, if you if you have a race condition, but just one thread always wins the race, no matter what, you may not even know you have a bug because it's like it doesn't look like a bug because the one thread always wins. Uh, but the, except for that one time in a hundred where the other thread wins and it causes your app to crash and you get crash reports from, let's say, the CEO of your company is like, "Oh, why can't you fix this?" And you're like, "I don't know. It doesn't crash when I do it." You know. Really interesting. But the uh, thread sanitizer is actually able to catch those even if one thread consistently wins the race, even if it's not. Even if the bug doesn't actually manifest itself, the thread sanitizer can still catch it. Uh, real quick, so Halt and Catch Fire mentions race condition at the very first episode, I believe. It kind of like describes it. I don't know if you're familiar with that show. Oh, I am. I love yeah. that show, yeah. Pretty cool show. Yeah. Um, okay, so is this something that you you run like with that instruments? Uh, you open up instruments or it's like always running or is it something separate when you like try to debug? Like how does yeah, it? It's, it's separate. You don't want to always run it because it does add a significant amount of over overhead to your code. Okay. Because um, it, it inserts a bunch of instrumentation stuff and it slows down your code quite a bit actually. But so is it just, it's an instrument or a profile that you run? You don't do anything in your code specifically? Correct. It's not an instrument, but it's it's in the scheme editor, I believe. So it's like right next to the zombie, like where you turn on zombies or the... I've, the only fur furthest I've gone is edit scheme and then like either turn off unit or UI test or gather coverage data or add new schemes. I've never done zombie. Yeah, so I think, let's see, I've got Xcode open right here. I'm going to open up the scheme editor so I can say the right thing. So if you go to, it's the diagnostics tab okay. in the scheme editor. There's a, there's a whole bunch of checkboxes there. One of them is like zombie objects, which has been there forever. And then there's some new ones that they've added recently, like the address sanitizers they added last year. And then this new thread sanitizers what is the, it's what we've been talking about. Okay. Wow, 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 wow. So yeah. this type of thing, is it for a simple application, like is it a real, I mean, I guess if you don't, if you don't know what you're doing, you could probably cause this issue or how realistic is this issue? I, I think if you, if you use multiple threads in your app, if you do anything on a thread other than the main thread, you could potentially have one of these race conditions. Okay. It's, it's, they're, they're pretty common. Okay. Yeah. So if like you're, you know, obviously you're updating the UI on the main thread, but then you're, you know, let's say, downloading something with NSURL session, which is happening. Well, here's I a good example. Uh, let's say, let's say you're, you're displaying something on the main thread. You've got an array, like an NS array that's, that has a bunch of data in it that you're displaying. So you've got some code that reads the array and puts it in a table view, for example. And you also have something on the background that's downloading data and sticking into the array. Well, now you might have a race condition between your download thread and your main thread because your download thread is trying to put new data in the array while your main thread is trying to read from the array to display. And so what would be some uh, things to watch out for to if that possibly is a common issue? Because, you know, we're always using table views. Like, what are some 
things to watch out for and how do you go about like discovering that? So the thing to watch out for is any kind of shared memory or shared variable. Like in this case, the the array would be considered like shared memory because right, maybe like a, a, a what it called a a singleton or something. A lot of the times people right. will do a singleton right on exactly. that particular array. Okay, and that's and that's shared because multiple threads are both both ha can see it. They both have access to it. Um, the the easiest way to to avoid these things is just to make sure that you you don't share that memory. So in, 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 the, in this simple case that I'm talking about, when your download's finished, you can do a dispatch main and then write to your array on the main thread. Right. So okay. you're never actually writing into it on the background thread. And that, okay. that's probably the easiest way to eliminate that, that common race condition. Okay, which I think is a typical It's a typical pattern, but it's also, we'll it's also a really easy thing to forget. Right? Okay. You're just right. like flying code and like you've got a completion block and you're just like, oh, in my completion block, I'll just do this. And you forget that your completion block is being called on a background thread. But I think that the compiler, if you forget that, the compiler warns because it'll say uh, trying to update the UI from a background thread is like discouraged and may be prevented in a future update or something like that. I, well, if that is if you're updating the UI, but if you're just updating your little array, then oh. that's, that's not going to get caught by the compiler. Interesting, interesting. Very fascinating stuff, and I think it's it's important um, for those that might be feeling like it's too advanced or something. It's good to be just exposed to this stuff because this is real uh, things are going to be encountering every day. Um, so so yeah, just kind of let it you know kind of be in the back of your mind now that you've been exposed to it. Um, a lot of this stuff you have to just get exposed to it once, and then and just kind of get exposed to it again over time. It'll eventually it'll eventually hit. Um, but ultimately, it's, it doesn't sound like it's that advanced. Some of that stuff I understood. I don't know <laughs> what zombie is, but uh, I'm going to talk to you about that maybe another oh, time. I wish we had time to talk about it. I love talking about zombies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. One minute. What's a zombie? Okay, so zombie objects is a, is a debugging tool that you use to find if you're trying to use an object after you've released it. So oh, okay. So basically what it does is when, when you release an object, normally um, that memory is just rec reclaimed by the system. But if you have zombies turned on, instead of reclaiming that memory, the system will actually replace it with a, with a zombie object. And then anytime you access that zombie object, the app will crash. And oh, wow. the useful thing there is that um, you're, you'll get a better error message. Because without zombies, your error message might be completely inscrutable. Um, you know, you'll get you'll because you'll because what will happen is you'll try to send a message to some random object that has that has reclaimed that memory, and so you'll get like a does not recognize. It'll you'll, what you'll get is something like, like NSRA does not recognize the selector set background color, and you're like, I'm not sending set background color to NSRA. Why is it think like why like the error message makes no sense? Right. And the reason is is because you used to have a UI view in that memory, and now there's an NSRA in that memory, so. You thought you were sending a set background color to a UI view, but you're actually sending it to an SRA. So with zombies turned on, you'll have what you'll have is you'll have a zombie UI view in that memory. So it'll still crash, but now the message will be um, message sent to deallocated object, which is exactly the problem, and it tells you exactly how to fix it. So uh, I'm not sure, but if uh, if it is the case, but it sounds like this happens a lot in like closures when you're like you have an asynchronous call. And you, you know you're passing in this closure, and then that object that you're referencing in the closure doesn't exist anymore, and like or, or it, it something like happen, that. It used to happen a lot before we had the weak keyword. Right, right. Back when everything was a sign, so weak, you know, automatically goes to nil when it gets deallocated, but a sign doesn't. So it would happen a lot with a sign. So like you, something would get deallocated, and you'd still have a pointer to it, uh, and you'd try to send something to that pointer, and it would be so, no good. So like a weak var or like a weak self, you mean? 
like uh, when you're declaring? Like a, when you're cre creating a property. Okay, so uh, like a weak var or something. Yeah. So it, but back before we had weak, you used to have to say assign. And, uh, okay. And so you had this problem a lot. You can still, I still get this problem from time to time. Actually, uh, I know we're out of time, but uh, I had an interesting bug I, I fixed recently where I, it was one of these. Like I was getting message sent to deallocated object with my zombies on. I was like, how is this ha possible? Like I'm using weak everywhere. I'm using arc. Uh, you know, I'm not doing anything funky with memory. What is going on? And the problem turned out to be that I had a function that was supposed to return an, a value. And for debugging purposes, I commented out the whole function. And I was no longer returning anything. So the function had no return statement. The, so that was actually corrupting the stack. Because the s compiler was expecting there to be a return value, and there was none. And it was completely corrupting the stack and screwing up all my memory. Wow. So watch out for that. It's such a simple mistake. And it, it, I, I burned like two hours trying to debug that. <laughs> did you finally de debug it in that uh, first session, or did it take a, a little walk, a little step up? It took you know, a step back. Yeah, yeah, I had to step back. And I came back, and there was a compiler warning that said, like, um, you know, no return value from this return function. I was like, oh, shoot. <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. what it is. Definitely a, a tip right there is uh, give, it a, give a step back and, yeah. and come back to it a little later yep. with a fresh mind. Okay, so we're definitely well over, but this was super interesting. So I want to do two things before we go. Um, where can people contact you online, if at all? Um, you know, not everybody is like, you know, on Twitter and stuff, but if, yeah. if at all, it sounds like you're really into certain things like security. So if people have security questions, maybe even. Absolutely. So I'm on Twitter. Uh, I don't tweet as often as I should. I'd like to, I should probably tweet more, but I am on Twitter at Josh Hinman, just my name uh, with two H's in the middle. Okay, cool. And we'll uh, link to that for sure in the show notes. Yep. And right. uh, yeah. Awesome. And the last thing is one piece of advice for people learning Swift. Go. Uh, I would say answer questions on the Stack Overflow. And yes, I said that right. Answer them. Yeah, yeah. That's a great idea. I actually yeah. want to do a answer questions on Stack Overflow night with one of my meetups. Yeah, that's it. You know what? There a lot of people might feel intimidated, like, oh, I can't, I don't know the answer to that. But, you know, you'd be surprised. There's actually quite a bit on there that where you just do a little bit of research, you can find the answer. And not only can you help someone else out, but now you've just learned the answer to that thing, too. So Yeah, yeah. I might hit you up <laughs> if I end up doing that. Maybe we yeah. can work on it together. Yeah, for sure. Cool. All right, Josh, thank you so much for coming on today yeah, and you. uh, sharing your story with us. Really interesting from, you know, being 11 to adding cheat codes to uh, the snake uh, gorilla monkey game. So, two, yeah, two different games, snake and gorilla. Those are two different games that I both I hacked on both of them. Yeah. And then to yeah. going to. Man, what were you in high school? You were, uh, man, what were you doing with Pearl? You did yep. something with Pearl, your chatbot, your chat aim chatbot. Yeah. And then um, and then getting into sound and lighting through like the uh, through high school and, and starting that in college, but not liking it. And then, you know, just taking that leap of faith and following your your mind and your heart and your gut and your instincts to quit and, you know, to go into computers and then like doing the database stuff. Uh, I believe it was. And uh, yeah, and then like having the foresight to see that the uh, iPhone was going to be um, awesome. I know there was something else interesting in there. What was it like your second chatbot thing? It wasn't a chatbot. It was like something just as cool. What was it? 
Oh, I don't remember. <laughs> oh, man, it was something just as cool. I will say, I don't think I had any foresight of seeing that the iPhone was going to be huge. It was. I just thought it was cool myself, and so I wanted to play with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't well, know if I, I'm not going to claim any foresight on that. <laughs> right on. You're, uh, you're being modest. No. <laughs> um, and, yeah, and then just, um, you know, just making, you know, making apps following your oh that that cool like rim thing where you like oh yeah the rims yeah yeah <laughs> that was the my rims. first iOS app yeah. and then uh, just keeping at it and uh, you know going to uh, Victorious and then now at Tiger Text and um, yeah thank you so much for sharing that story and yeah, for coming pleasure. on and uh, I hope to talk with you again yeah so thank you so much and that's the show ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. Feel free to share the show with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends. <laughs>